0: invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Hebrews. And we are in chapter eight and we have been looking in recent days at the reality that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant built on better promises. And we read now in verse seven, these words for if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second because finding fault with them our translation reads some translations read with it that is going back to the uh to verse seven the first covenant because finding fault with them or with it he says behold the days are coming says the lord when i will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, here quoting Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-one and following. We'll make this new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that he says, a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let's pray once again and ask God's help as we look into his word this morning. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for this time that we now have to come to your holy word. And Father, we have asked in our song and prayer that you would speak. And Lord, we do indeed ask that we would know your mind that we would be guided into your truth and understand the work of your grace in our heart, that work which has been done for many and that needs to be done for others. We ask, Lord, you would grant that light and insight by the Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If someone were to ask you, why do you do the things that you do, or why are you the way that you are, or why do you think the way that you think, you might give ser- several answers to that. You might uh, speak of your nature, that is that, well, uh, I'm Italian, or I'm Dominican, or uh, whatever the case might be, and so that kind of explains uh, the way that I am. We tend to have this kind of temperament. You might point to the land in which you were born, well, we're Americans, and Americans tend to be this way or that way. Or you might point to the nurture, that is, well, in my family, we had things in this particular way, and so that's the way that I am. And you may know that there is a great debate among sociologists of the effect of nature versus nurture on the life of the individual, particularly the life of a child. How much of who and what they are is the result of their genetics and how much is the result of the way in which they were raised. And you'll find at times interesting stories about twins separated at birth uh, who grow up in different homes and in different states and, and yet they are remarkably alike, they find, when they are reunited. And yet other studies would indicate that we are shaped more by our environment. That is by our parents and by our friends and by our upbringing. Now there is, however, a far more profound shaping influence. And it is well summarized in the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. How do you explain a believer? You explain them largely By the grace of God. And it is this aspect of life. That is on full display in the truth. Before us. And again the greater argument. Being made in the context. By the preacher and. We have referred to the book of Hebrews very often as a sermon. It's a word of exhortation, uh, he says. uh, And in the words of the preacher, he's making the argument. So I stated a moment ago that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant established on better promises. Now, this truth is intended to fix the heart of these Jewish disciples fully and forever to Jesus, and as it were, to properly burn their bridges to what were what was viewed by some as an alternative refuge. That is, if I leave Jesus, I can go back to the old covenant. And the writer is going to say that old covenant is no hiding place for your soul. In fact, it is obsolete. And it is nigh unto passing away. There is a better covenant, a new covenant that is established in the blood of Jesus. Now, what we're going to consider today is the first of the promises of the new covenant. We've uh, dealt with some background material and previous messages But this morning, I want us to consider the promise that God would write or place his law into the mind and that he would write it upon the heart. That's what we want to consider this morning. And as we do so, I want to consider, first of all, its necessity. Secondly, its source. Thirdly, its essence. And then finally, its outworking and blessing. We're asking the question, what does it mean to have the law of God placed in the mind and written on the heart. Let's consider, first of all, its necessity. And what I want to deal with here are the terms mind and heart. I will place or put my laws into their mind, and I will write them on their hearts. The old covenant that some were tempted to go back to had no power to do this. Now, there are debates, both theological and grammatical, in this passage in reference to what he means in verse 8, finding fault. And I mentioned that in my reading. Is it that he finds fault with them, that is, the recipients of the old covenant, that is, faithless Israel? Or was there a problem with the covenant itself? Now, both are indicated In the passage, and there are some textual variants that I'm not going to get into, but I think if we had to say, let's make the argument, I think we can say that it is with both. That the fault is found in our humanity, because the old covenant is a covenant of works and a covenant of law. Do this, and you will live. And yet, there is no capacity to do it. And the way that they are commanded to do it by virtue of our humanity but there was also a fault in the covenant itself. And while God's law is, as we have been going through Psalm 119, and Psalm 119 is not just referencing the 10 commandments, it's taking in the totality of God's law. It is perfect and it gives wisdom and all of the rest, but it has no power to do this. It has no power to write itself in the heart and in the mind. It has no power to save. The old covenant, a covenant of works, is not a covenant of grace. So there was ever and always the need for this covenant of grace. The covenant itself requires, the nature of the covenant itself required another covenant. If mankind were to be saved, if man's sin was to be taken away, the old covenant required the blood of bulls and goats. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away the guilt of our sin. We needed a better priest. We needed a heavenly tabernacle. We needed better promises. But there was also the reality that that law given to people who were In many cases, largely unregenerate. It had no ability then to affect their life, their soul, uh, and their behavior. And so there is a need. This is what we're getting at. There is a need in salvation for God to deal with our nature. Not just to give information. Not just to give better commandments, as it were. But to change our nature, and this is what we focus on here. The Bible tells us that we have by nature a carnal or a fleshly mind. Romans chapter 8 and verse 7. Because the carnal mind or the fleshly mind, the unconverted mind, is enmity against God. The mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. It is not And it cannot be. Now, sometimes somebody says, well, I don't do this. It's not that I couldn't do this. I'm just not doing it. But in this case, it's I'm not doing it and I have no power. Flesh and blood cannot suffice. Paul describes the minds of Gentiles in this way in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17 This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. And how do they walk? In the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. If the new covenant is to be better than the old, then something must happen in the lives of the people. Something must happen in their internal life. Something must fundamentally change in their nature. Something has to happen in their mind and something has to change in their hearts. Now, the old covenant people underwent an extraordinary change in their environment and their circumstances. They went from slavery to freedom. They went from poverty to wealth, from Egypt to Canaan. And sometimes we look at that and we say, how could they live the way that they did, having experienced what they have experienced? Well, listen, experience doesn't necessarily change you. It doesn't enlighten you. Some people think I'm going through a hardship and the Bible says that that trials will shape me not, not by themselves. It's not simply an experience that shapes and molds us. Those events, amazing and powerful as they were, the opening of the Red Sea and all of the rest did not alter their minds and their hearts, which is why they were able... Mere days after hearing the voice of God on Mount Sinai to rise up and play and commit adultery and go after idols. And we look at it again because what in our minds we think those events should have shaped them. Years later, Isaiah would say in Jesus quotes this Isaiah 29:13 Therefore the Lord said Inasmuch as these people draw near to me with their mouths and honor we honor me with their lips but have removed their hearts far from me and their fear toward me is taught by the commandments of men they honor me with their mouth but their hearts are far away And that's why throughout the old covenant, there are repeated exhortations from Moses and the prophets to the people to circumcise their hearts. You need to get a new heart. And so the promise came of a covenant which would alter not just the circumstances of their people, but the inward man, their mind and their heart. Now the word translated as mind is a word sometimes translated as understanding, as in Ephesians chapter 1. It's a faculty of mind expressed in knowledge and in wisdom. It's the where and the how of our thinking. And then the heart. Again, we tend to think in our culture, uh, mind is thinking, heart is emotion. Uh, In the Bible, the heart Bounds many of these, or binds many of these things together, the core of the being, the soul, the place of thinking and of feeling, uh, the place of the will, the, that what uh, Solomon calls in uh, Proverbs for the place from which the springs of life issue. And so it is in Ezekiel that we read Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-six. I will give you a new heart. This is the promise that this is Ezekiel's take on the new covenant. I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you, and I will take away the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. The glory of the new covenant over the old is seen in large measure through the reality that God will do something in the lives of his people by grace. He will deal with their hearts, and he will deal with their minds. As we have said often, if God has done something for you in Christ, he has also by his grace done something in you. He has raised you up. He hasn't just dealt with your status. He's dealt with your being. He's altered you, changed you. He's caused you to become a new creation. He's made you to be born again. If the new covenant is to be the blessing it is intended to be, if it is to guarantee the salvation of all those who enter into it, and if they are to remain faithful to the end and not turn away, then the heart of stone must be removed, and the heart of flesh, a living, beating, spiritual new heart, must take place. The bringing about again of what Paul calls in Second Corinthians a new creation. Again, Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 32:40, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them from doing good, and I will put my fear in their hearts so they will not depart from me. Amen. God does not simply receive you or forgive you by his grace, he makes you new by the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, secondly, and I'm really already getting into this, it's source. And what I'm getting at here is simply this is a work of God's grace. God is saying, I will do this. I will put this in. So we ask the question, who does the work? Who does the work of changing and altering you? Now, listen, there are exhortations in the scriptures to change. To stop what you're doing. To no longer go the way that you are going. we There were, as we saw and already alluded to, exhortations to circumcise, in the language of the prophets, the foreskin of your heart. And there's even a reference in Ezekiel to getting a new heart. Listen to what he says, Ezekiel 18 31. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed and get yourself a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? And so there may be a way in which it's possible and potential for a preacher to stand up and say to people, Listen, you need to put your sin away from you. It's time to change your heart time to change your spirit but somebody will say but brother can we truly in and of ourselves do this well again as we will see there is a call we're going to look at this tonight there is a call in the word to resist passivity when it comes to our salvation we can call sinners to cry out jesus says strive to enter into the kingdom." But we also know that if that happens, all the honor and all the glory will go to God. Remember, Jeremiah asked this question in Jeremiah thirteen twenty three: Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Then may you also do good who are accustomed to do evil. See, something fundamentally has to change in us. And the one who does this is God. And that's the focus of this text. So Ezekiel, again, as quoted before, Ezekiel 36, 26, having said earlier, get yourself a new heart, now says, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. I will take away the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And so here the living God says, I will place my laws in your minds and I will write them on your hearts. I will be your God. I will forgive you your sins. This is God at work. It's the language of grace and yes, of sovereign grace. This is the language that reminds us that our salvation is of the Lord. As we have been reminded recently in Ephesians chapter 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were in bondage, but God, who is rich in mercy and grace, who loved us with great love, he is the one who made us alive together with Christ. And this is why in the world to come, as we contemplate the full and final salvation that we all enjoy as we see the Lord, All honor and all glory goes to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. So we've seen its necessity. We need to have God work something internally in us. We have seen its source, that is God himself. Now let's consider its essence. What happens in the life of anyone and everyone who by grace enters into this new covenant? Well, according to the promise... God places his laws in their mind and he writes his laws upon their hearts. So what in the world does that mean? How do we know if this has happened to us? Because some wrestle at times, am I in this this new covenant? Has God really done a work in me? What are the marks of it? Well, this is one of the marks of God doing a saving work. In us and and, and for us. Now these words are meant both to parallel and contrast the giving of the law under the old covenant. Now the first question we need to ask is this. What laws are being referred to here? Does God write the entirety of the Mosaic economy upon the heart of the new covenant believers? Well the answer to that is obviously. Study the Bible. No. No. The ceremonial laws and the dietary laws are obviously fulfilled and abrogated in Christ. Jesus did all that needed to be done to fulfill all righteousness. Our our confession of faith puts it this way. And I'm doing this really just by way of, of, of theological composition and shorthand here. But our confession of faith, chapter 22 of the law of God says this. Uh, Concerning the civil and ceremonial laws of the old covenant, God was pleased to give to the people of Israel ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth various instructions of moral duties. All which ceremonial laws being appointed only to the time of reformation, that is till Jesus came and and lived and died, are by Jesus Christ, the true Messiah and only lawgiver who has furnished with power, who was furnished with power from the father to that end abrogated or taken away. So what laws? Well, are we given any help in our study of the scriptures? And what we're asking is this, did God ever write laws anywhere? And if God did, what laws did he write? And the answer to that is he wrote the 10 commandments or what we often refer to in our theological heritage as moral law. Exodus 32, 16. Now the tablets were the work of God. And the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. This language is unique to the giving of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 31, 18. And when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony. Tablets of stone written with the finger of God. The law and the tablets of stone, the laws which we read in Exodus 20 that he spoke with his own mouth in the hearing of all the people. You remember that in Exodus 20, God speaks from the mountain and he gives the 10 words, the 10 commandments. And the mountain shakes and the people hear the voice of God and they're terrified. And they say, Moses, you go hear from God all the rest of the laws And God says there's wisdom in that and Moses ascends the mountain and he receives the civil and the ceremonial laws. But there was a law spoken with the mouth of God and written with the finger of God and the laws which were inscribed in the human heart and the human conscience in creation the law given to Adam, the work of that law remains in the lives of unconverted people, in their conscience, which accuses them when they lie and commit adultery or murder. The law of God condemns it, in their mind because it's written in that sense, the work of the law, the condemning or approving work of the law. But something better is said here. I'm going to write this law. This law which shows in the first table, love to God. With all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And in the second, loving your neighbor as yourself. I'm going to write it not just with my finger on tablets of stone. Which were then placed in the Ark of the Covenant. I'm going to place it in your mind. And I'm going to write it in your inner being. It is this law. Which is being referenced here. To again quote our confession in chapter 22 on the moral law. The moral law does forever bind all. There's no place in the world where it's okay to murder. There's no place in the world where it's okay to commit adultery, where it's okay to lie and to blaspheme. It binds all people, as well justified persons as others, to the obedience thereof. That is, now that you're in Christ and you say, well, I'm not under law, I'm under grace, meaning what? That you can blaspheme and worship idols and be rebellious and commit adultery? It doesn't mean that. No, it binds justified persons to the obedience thereof. And that not only in regard to the matter contained in it, but also in respect to the authority of God, the creator who gave it. And neither does Christ in the gospel any way dissolve, but much strengthen this obligation. And what he's saying is, and what they're saying is this, that when you come to Christ, do you have a greater or lesser desire to honor God with a life of obedience? You have a greater desire. That's the gospel doesn't dissolve the reality that this is the mind and will of God for all people in all ages. When Jeremy and others go down to the bridge and, and, and do open air preaching and in some ways make declarations which are intended. The hope is to, to grab the heart and convict the heart and show sin so that they might see their need of salvation. You don't go out there and say, have any of you ever eaten shellfish? <laughs> How many of you have, have, have failed to, to bring a goat or, 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 or free will offering?" So I don't don't say that. But you say, is your mind and heart a moral cesspool? How many of you are enslaved and addicted to your computer? And it's something like that, you see. Taking the seventh commandment and opening it up. How many of you have been unrighteously angry? Do you know Jesus says it's murder? See, we don't bring about conviction through the ceremonial law or the sundry judicial laws. But through the moral law, idolatry and blasphemy and immorality or rebellious hearts or lies or raging discontent or disregard for God and his worship and honor. Those things aren't taken away by the work of grace. Rather, the work of grace. grace strengthens our desire because as new creatures in Christ, we want to be holy and bless god god gives some parameters and definition about what that means see god doesn't just say to people i want you to go out there and i want you to please me and honor me now i don't know how just you'll all just it'll all just be a vague feeling as you pray about it and you'll just feel peace about it no god gives to us imperatives and exhortations and commands. Again, these laws are summarized and love to God with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving our neighbor as ourselves. So what does it mean to place them in the mind and write them on the heart? Well, it's to contrast the external of the old covenant written in stone with the new where it's written on the inner man. God had placed the written law Those two tablets of stone, the second, because the first Moses broke and and God, when the tablets were to be remade, God wrote them again and then placed them in the Ark of the Covenant so that when the people of old heard the law and in a sense saw the law, they turned away and went their own way and judgment was brought on them. But for God to place it in the mind, in our thinking, and write it in our hearts, and our will, and, and on our desires. So that the heart of who and what we now are, our once exalted self, is dethroned. The opinions of men are dethroned. And in its place, not only a strong desire to please the Lord, but the means by which that might be achieved by the Holy Spirit. That is, he has told us, he has shown us what is good and what the Lord requires to us. Again, pleasing the Lord is not simply left to our conscience. There may be occasions in which that's the case in matters of indifference, but pleasing the Lord is a matter of revelation. Do you want to know what pleases somebody? Ask them. How many of you are thinking all this time about what to get somebody? You want to get a, get a gift, a special gift maybe, for those of you who celebrate Christmas. You want to get a special gift and, and, you're, and you're just guessing. You know, they, they, they left that cup with the you know, chip out on it. Maybe what they're saying is, I, I want this replaced. Or, or you're hoping that somewhere they, they, they're going to leave a, a catalog open or page left up on the internet so that when you log on, oh, there, there's what there's you, know, you know what else you could do? You could ask them. So what do you want? I, I can't figure out what you want. Do you know what you want? Because if anybody knows, I figure it's probably you. Lord, do you know what you want? Do you know what is pleasing in your sight? We were recreated by a work of grace. This is Ephesians 2. Unto good works. Recreated by grace, but unto good works, which God prepared. What did God prepare? The works in advance for us to walk in. And though I'm not intending to get into all of this at this time, and some of you aren't going to have a clue what I'm talking about, but I'm just going to say this briefly. One of the great failures of the modern progressive covenantalism, which is taught by virtually everybody at Southern Seminary, and what is called New Covenant theology by some, and I think to myself, what an incredible misnomer, because the heart of New Covenant theology is that these Ten Commandments aren't binding, and I was like, oh, the whole essence of the new covenant is that they're in your heart and mind. I don't understand how that one came to be. The moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, some teach are of no greater moral authority or worth or direction for the life of the new covenant believer than any other old covenant law abrogated or done away with by Christ. And that only if it's repeated in the new, does it have binding. Well, guess what's repeated in the new? The moral law of God. Some would say we have a distinctly new covenant ethic. But again, name one moral imperative revealed in the New Testament that cannot be placed properly understood under one of the Ten Commandments. If you have trouble with that, get out the uh, larger catechism uh, and, and you'll see how this is fleshed out. These laws that God gave, written with his finger and spoken by his mouth, remain the essence of what it means to be godly, to live a holy life rooted in love to God and to our neighbor. Now this law cannot and does not save you. But that doesn't mean it cannot show you that this is what God desires for your life. These commandments, we are told, are exceedingly broad. Remember, Jesus taught how they teach or how they touch on the heart and the desires and not just the outward life. You've heard it said not to commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks upon a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her in her heart. You've heard it, it was said, do not murder. But I tell you, he who is angry unrighteously murders in the heart. There is the hidden person, which is why these things touch so well upon the heart. And the mind. So where does God place his laws? In us. In us. As he gives us a new heart and new spirit. And a renewed mind. He places it in the mind. Just as it was placed generations ago. In the ark of the covenant. So now it's placed in the recipient of the new. And just as he spoke. And inscribed his laws on tablets of stone. So now he writes them. On the tablets of the heart. What was external is now internal now let's consider its outworking and blessing the actions of God in the past had the power to inform and to condemn but no power to change a person whereas before conversion our minds were in darkness fixated on self now renewed and enlightened in the inner being the christian has a desire to know god and to please god so that prayer such as show me the way that i should go lord i want to honor you i want to know you i want to love you i want to please you i want to be what you want me to be inwardly and outwardly how did that happen Well, you say, well, it's because I got saved. That's right, because you got saved. And in all of that, in in, in the realm of our salvation, God changed your status from guilty to innocent. He changed your record, but he also changed who you are. That heart once darkened and stony is now made new by grace inscribed there with the finger of God a desire to have him be our God and to worship him and to reverence his name and to be in his house among his people on his day, to honor authority, to honor life, to honor purity and property and truth and to be content with our lot in life. Do those things now mark you in a way that they didn't? Are they, as it were, just kind of like, they're just there. You say, how did it get there? How how did all of a sudden these new desires come about? A desire to love others and to have that love shaped by God's own revelation. We read in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and this is, taken in the complex of 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 many wonderful truths but paul can say in the midst of it therefore we make it our aim whether present or absent to be well pleasing to him not not pleasing him in the way of earning our salvation but brethren doesn't mean that listen he's going to say one day don't we all want to hear him say well done good and faithful servant Is that simply because we've been justified by faith? Or is that a reference to being a a faithful servant? Striving to walk in ways that please him. And does that, so I'm I'm asking, does this describe you? And and, and if it does, I'm trying to help you to understand why you you are the way that you are. And sometimes you're frustrated with unconverted people because they don't act a certain way. They're not able to. Don't be surprised that unconverted people act like unconverted people. The grief should be when converted people act like unconverted people. Does this describe your heart, your desires? When you say to yourself, you look back on your life. I I look back, so November, around this time of year, 40 now, see. 46 years ago, something like that, I I was converted and baptized and added uh, to my church back home in New York. And that was a long time ago. I was a young guy then, 14 years old. I know enough of my life to know (laughs) making it my ambition to be well-pleasing to him was not on my daily calendar a heart to seek the Lord and to please the Lord and to know conviction of sin and to repent and to be more of what the Lord wanted me to be by his grace and by his spirit, to put sin to death by the spirit. That was not in me before, but it came about when God saved me from my sins. It's not who I was, but it is who I am by God's grace. I am what I am, not by the law of God, But by the grace of God. And that grace did write His law upon my heart and put it into my mind. It's not who I was, but it is who I am. Now, again, how do we know what's well pleasing to Him? Well, again, He has told us, He's recorded it in His Word. Does it please Him to own Him as our Lord, to worship Him according to His revealed will? Does it honor Him to reverence His name? Does it honor him when his people gather on the day that Jesus rose from the dead? Does it honor him when children honor and obey their parents? The word of God says it does. Children obey your parents and the Lord for this is well pleasing to him. Does it honor God when we strive to honor life and marriage and sexuality? When we honor our neighbor's goods in his name? Is God honored by our contentment with our lot in life. When we love one another and bear one another's burdens and fulfill this law of Christ is to love each other. But again, that love has eyes. Somebody has said that law is love's, uh, love is law's heart. and Without love, law is dead. But law is love's eyes and without law, love is blind. Because, see, we're told today, that I don't know any other thing that gets this kind of definition. You try to turn this in as a homework assignment. Define love. Um, Love. Love is love. love. Define water. Water. F. That's not how you define it. Love is patience. And love is kind and love does not seek its own. And listen, and love does no harm to a neighbor. And any definition of love that allows our neighbor to be harmed is not love, no matter what we call it. Is this heart and mind within you? Listen, I'm not asking anybody if you're perfect. I'm not asking anybody here to listen, does this mark you 24 hours a day, seven days a week without fail? But by grace, can you say that there is evidence that in your heart and in your mind, a new standard and new desires and a new power came with your new status in Christ? Has that which condemned you and drove you to the cross become by God's grace a source of delight? If not, don't go to the law. Go to the one who fulfilled the law for sinners. And go to that place where he was able to say in his dying words, it is finished. And when that God has grace on on you, he'll take away all your sin. You'll become his child. And he'll give you a new heart and a new mind. In which he places his desire or his desires for you within you. Well, let's pray and let's ask God to bless these things to us. Our Father in heaven, thank you for these moments together where we can study and look at your word. And Father, we do pray that you would bless this truth to us, uh, aid us, living God, in our thinking and in our direction in regard to a life, Lord, live to your honor and glory. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this work of grace in our hearts. We praise the God of grace in Jesus' name, amen.